Feeling relaxed. Yeah. That's cool. I'm not, I'm not going to need that, actually. I did tell... I got that wrong. You're right. You did ask me. And I... Sorry, I got it wrong. Apologies, Sam. Well, we are going to talk about sex. We're talking about God's design for sex. And um, can I just say before we begin, it's an important topic for all the ages. I remember talking to a pastor, an older pastor, Kevin Connor, if anyone remembers that name. And I said, I was a youth pastor at the time, so what would you talk about if you had the chance? He said, honestly, I, I would talk about this topic of sex as much as possible. It's, it's totally underdone, underspoken about in church life. But it's not just for the young, I have recently discovered. Um, I had the privilege yesterday of being at the Saturday Connect group. And uh, this is a great group. It's mainly a group of, I think it's over 60s that gather together. And I want to tell you what I experienced yesterday. Oh, what is it? Oh, 50. You all looked at least over 60, but just saying. (laughs) I don't think I'll be invited back for a little while, will I? This group of over 50s gather together. And I want to tell you what I experienced yesterday. Jess and I experienced um, two of their oldest members came and they handed out a magic packet of beans to everybody. Now this was Jean and Desley. Uh, everyone probably knows Jean and Desley. I don't know if Jean and Desley are here. This one. Oh, they're over here. There we are. The giggle box is going, I can see. Now Jean and Desley handed out these magic beans to everybody and we started hearing like the giggles going around and there's a whole stack of pills in here that do incredible things for you in old age. But I got to tell you, the most celebration in the room wasn't over the purple bean, which helps um, arthritis, and it wasn't over the orange bean that helps deafness, it was over the red bean that helps your sexual drive, all right? And it was handed out by probably the two oldest members of our own church. So I'm telling you, this is for all of the ages, everybody's allowed, and down, this is what I really found cool, Under the red bean, the only bean that has special instructions, it says, red pills may be cut in quarters if needed. (laughs) And I tell you, I've spent the whole night trying to work out from what angle it needs to be cut in quarters. To last longer, I'm not really sure, but, but you can work it out for yourself. So... Bottom line is it's for everybody here today. That's, that's really what I want to say. I just want to say too, at the start, we're doing this for three weeks. We'll be talking about sex. And um, while I wish I wasn't an, ex- an expert on all things sex, I am not. Um, so I actually do want to acknowledge uh, some people I've really heavily relied on uh, the next couple of weeks. Alan Meyer is one a great resource if you're wanting to delve further and understand more. And another guy, Archibald Hart, has written a great book on uh, this topic. So I just want to acknowledge them as we move forward. I'm thankful, honestly, for those that have uh, made a way for the rest of us. So today, God's design for sex. First thing that the sad thing about sex, I think, is this, that sometimes there's a bit of a perception out there that it was really the devil that created sex, right? And God has been trying to stomp that thing out ever since, you know? That's a bit of the perception that God shuts his eyes, whenever we sort of see sex happening on the earth, that God wishes it didn't really happen. But I think what we're going to find over the next couple of weeks is that is so far from the truth. In fact, we're going to find out that sex is something beautiful. We're going to find out some really great realities about sex. 
But I want to kick off in a different place today uh, as we really get into what we're talking about. I actually want to talk about the difference between a rule and a law. Just, just to start us off, the difference between a rule and a law. Games have rules. Rugby union has rules, not that any of us care one bit about rugby union this morning. Uh, cricket has rules. You need rules to be able to play uh, games, right? So, uh, what have we got? You were waiting for that, weren't you? In case you missed it, I don't know, he waved some flag that looks a lot like the Australian flag. So, uh, so yeah, go Aussies! <laughs> you were ready, you were ready. Cricket has rules. Um, and, and we need rules, otherwise we don't know what's going on. We, we've got to, we have rules to play games, they're important. There's an interesting thing about the game of cricket, W.G. Grace, who was one of the most famous of all cricketers, once apparently got bowled out and he turned around, the, the bales fell off the stumps, turned around, put the bales back on the stumps and said simply, come on, stop all this nonsense and let's, let's get on with the game and kept playing. And everybody just sort of scratched their head because he broke... The rules, that's not how you play. You, you need rules to be able to play a game. But the thing is, rules can be changed. If you think about uh, cricket again, uh, they've changed how the no ball rule works. They've changed the number of balls in and over. Rules can be changed. It's, it's not a big deal. It's what happens. Uh, we change the rules. But laws are different. Laws go to the very nature of how things are. They explain how things work. Gravity is a law. We can't mess with that law. It's just how things are. If we got all the top scientists in the world, a bit like they did for Pluto, if you remember that, they all gathered together and they, they changed things. They said Pluto is no longer a planet. I don't know, what, they, what, what did they turn it into? A meteor or, or something like that? Do you know, Matt? Uh, a pseudo planet, a small, uh, something. They said it's not a planet anymore. Uh, they changed things. But they couldn't do that with gravity. They couldn't all get together and say, we're changing things. Just make a new rule. They'd still go outside, we all know it, and you know, if they held an apple, they dropped it, it would still fall on the floor, nothing would happen. Why is that? Because it's a law. It's the way things are. It's, laws are intrinsic to how the universe is designed. It cannot be changed. It's the way things are. The thing about God is, God doesn't make rules. God speaks from a perspective of absolute truth. He knows why things are created and he knows their purposes. He knows how things work. There's a standard in the universe and everything he, he makes is measured from him because he is the absolute standard. He is absolute truth. When God speaks laws, he speaks into the nature of reality. Therefore, they're laws. The thinking out there in society is that the church is talking about rules. But really, the church or God or the Bible, whichever one, has just taken on a whole stack of rules that have been passed down from generation to generation. They don't really know why they've come up with those rules, but they have. And they're silly rules and, and we shouldn't hold to those rules because, again, rules can be broken. That's the common thinking. Again, the common thinking is that anything that comes from God or the Bible is repugnant because we get to decide what is right and wrong. That's just the way it is. If you look at the media out there or, or television programs, American TV sitcoms, whatever you watch these days, it's just basically the way it's presented that 
that nobody else gets to tell us how we run our lives, especially when it comes to issues of sexuality. We get to choose ourselves and we sure don't need some God telling us how to live our life. Author Dale Kuhn, he says this, we now live in a time and a place in which the cultural narrative in each is that each one of us should have the maximum amount of freedom to do what we please. And if we're robbed of the ability to do what we please, we're being robbed of the ability to be who we are. And that manifests most clearly in issues of sexuality. So true. Bottom line, we get to choose. But I don't know about you. I know though, if, if it just went on what we get to choose, I know personally, probably it's true for you, there are times in my life where if I got to choose, I would have absolutely chosen wrong. I would have absolutely chosen the thing that I most wanted, that at that moment in time felt exactly right for what I wanted. I would have demanded it. It would have been a, I would have said it was a benefit to me. It would have worked for me. But as I look back with the experience of time, understanding some truth, I now understand I would have been profoundly wrong had I grabbed a hold of those things. Hardly even, again, need to talk about the narrative that is out there when it comes to the media. The media does, has moved far beyond it being a question anymore to it's just normal for sex to be anything that we want sex to be. So what is God's design for sex? Well, I'm going to start in an interesting place. Acts chapter 15 is where I want us to kick off. Because what's happening in Acts chapter 15 is that there are countless Gentiles, which are people that are not Jews, that are outside uh, the birthright of being Jewish, and they're becoming Christians. And there's all these Gentiles becoming Christians, and that bothers all the Jewish Christians because they have centuries of Mosaic law of basically the the first part of the Bible is full of law and they've got centuries of law of how they're supposed to live. In fact, if you count them up, there's 613 laws in the Old Testament of how you're supposed to live. And their question is, what are we supposed to do with these guys? Because they don't know all of this law. Is it enough that they just know Jesus and then they can do whatever they want? Or do they have to follow some of the laws, all of the laws? And, and it's a massive quandary and they get the wisest minds together in the scripture in, in that day. Uh, some of the disciples and the apostles, they pull them together and they have this council and they discuss it. And this is where they arrive. James stands up and he says, Acts 15, 19, it's my judgment, therefore, we shouldn't make it difficult for the Gentiles, those outsiders who are turning to God. Instead, write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality and from the meat of strangled animals and from blood. That's it. It's a beautiful moment in Scripture. 613 commandments are narrowed down basically into three or four commands there of how to live their life. Don't you love that Jesus, that God doesn't want to make it too complicated for us, that He's not into rules, that He wants to simplify our ability to follow Him. In Acts 15, 29, a few verses later, they just summarize it. You are abstained to abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. And then it says this, you will do well to avoid these things. Don't mix idol worship 
into your, into your worship. Don't mix idolatry into your worship. That stands today. The meat from strangled animals is an interesting one. Really, the core of that, the heart of that, is really all about understand that you've got Jewish brothers and sisters, and that's going to grossly offend them. So can you give on this one? Can you understand that your life is about giving to other people as well? Can you understand that? And the third one there, sexual immorality. If you avoid sexual immorality, it will go well for you. The inverse of that is, if you don't avoid sexual immorality, it will not go well for you. And we're going to look at this last one here today. In the text there, that word is pornea. We've mentioned this a bit in recent times. It's the word in English where we get the word pornography. The most simple definition would be illicit sexual behavior. It, it's the big spectrum, adultery or, again, pornography, sex outside of marriage, a whole list of sexual sins. Now, was this just a one-off that we can sort of put to the side and just say, oh, it doesn't really matter. If they were talking at a certain time or place or, or does it stand today? What we find is this command to avoid sexual immorality repeated all throughout the scriptures. I just want to mention a few. Romans 1.29. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed. And this time it uses the word depravity. That's the word pornea again. In other words, sexual immorality, pornea, leads to a depravity in us. Interesting how it's put there. 1 Corinthians 6 3. The body's not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. 1 6 Corinthians 6 18. Flee from sexual immorality. 2 Corinthians 12 21. I'm grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin, and debauchery in which they've indulged. Ephesians 5 3. Among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality. This is a reinforced message of the scriptures that speaks to us today, not meant for just a little moment in time, but a command that carries on. So this is now getting to the pointy end of things here today, where we've got to start being challenged. We've got to start going, okay, the scripture's talking about this. We need to listen to it. just wonder if we can pray. Heavenly Father, we open up our heart. And our mind right now to hear, God, you speak to us. God, you're speaking to us on this issue of our sexual wholeness, God. We pray, Lord, that our hearts are soft and we're ready to hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, we're talking God's laws versus man's rules. I was thinking about it. Here's probably the big rule when it comes to sexuality or, or what our sex life can be about that man has made up, goes something like this. Sex without a victim is okay, but sex with a victim is not okay. We've all probably heard something along those lines. As long as there's nobody hurt in this, doesn't matter what you do, it's not a problem. And it sounds pretty good, right? At the end of the day, as long as nobody gets hurt, it's okay, whatever you do. It's interesting. That in a world of no absolutes, though, I find these things interesting, that somehow we still, the world still manages to find some morality, still finds some ultimate morality. We say, well, that's an absolute truth. Nobody can get hurt. If there's a victim, it's wrong. If it makes you happy, there's no victim, it's got to be okay. But is that true? What about if there is a victim? What if you could get hurt, but you don't know that you're 
a victim. Remember, this is a law we're talking about here. This isn't a rule. It's about a law. It's about the nature of what is real. When God talks about sex, God is talking about what he crafted because there is a law that follows sex and that law can be broken. And consenting doesn't change anything because it's a law. It's how it actually is. You can try and get around it, but you can't. I said last week, I could consent, I could refuse the law of gravity again. I was talking about jumping off a, a building. I could consent to jumping off a building. I could say, well, I, I give my, my, my free will to jump off the building. But if I jump off the building, I'm still going to get hurt. And this is how it works with the law of sex. Consenting makes no difference if you break the law. So let's talk about the origin of sex. Why, why not this poor near? Why does the Bible treat this thing so special? Because sex is not ordinary. The common view out there is that sex is just one of the elements. It's like eating or drinking or enjoying life or going to work. It's just one of the elements. The Bible makes it clear. Sex is holy. Sex is extraordinary. The worldview is that sex outside of marriage is okay and normal, that homosexuality is not different from any other relationship, that abortion, there's no problem with that, that that the way around sexual disease is just through education. But the Bible tells us where sex comes from. If I were to ask the average man on the street, where does sex come from? They'd probably talk about evolution. It It was an evolutionary process. It's so that we procreate and keep the species going. It's just part of who we are, life invented sex, it's just got a a purpose to it. Where does God's idea from sex come from? What would God know about sex? I think we'd find something like this, that sex is the most extraordinary thing in human experience because it came out of God's own divine nature. You see, the Bible declares that God is not like the Muslims present God. The Muslims present God as a singularity of being, just one being. There's no community happening there. God is just God on his own. But the Bible says God is three persons in one. God is the Father, the Son or the Word and the Holy Spirit. The Bible declares that each of those are distinct as part of the Godhead. They, they are different. It says something about the individuality that God gives us and that is in the Godhead and and Jesus and the Holy Spirit don't get swallowed up in their personality in God the Father. They're distinct beings. Another way of putting this, and they don't lose their identity in their relationship. And another way of putting that would be love. Now we can see something of the greatness of God in our human existence. The ability for two individual persons to become one substance, to share that substance together. So the Bible says that when God created man, he made him a sexual being with a desire for intimacy. He put that in, men and women, to desire an intimacy so that we would understand something of the intimacy of the Godhead. He created the ability for Uh, the bodies of men and women to come together and experience, again, something of that awesomeness of intimacy that God understands through all of eternity. But in doing so, He wired us to be known and to belong. He wired it into our biochemistry. 
so that our physical frame would feel something of the intimacy of sex that could not be felt in any other realm barring the spiritual realm. So this is why we begin to see the law of sex in action. It explains why premarital sex is not a good idea because when we come together, there is a blending of our souls and our hearts. There is an exchange that takes place, which, by the way, is a pattern of what happens when Jesus enters us. When we make a faith decision, Jesus' spirit dwells in us. He regenerates us. And it gives us a picture of what is happening in that moment. He changes us from moment to moment as we continue that intimate relationship with Christ. And that is a picture of what happens in the intimacy of sex. So the law of sex. In the law of sex, the only way sex can be without a victim is explained in Genesis. Genesis 2.24 for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. He said to the man, you need to leave your father and your mother to desire the sort of intimacy that you're longing for. Leave your father and mother. and Really get a hold of what's being said here. To enjoy the thrill of sex, you have to leave one life to enter the next. So here is, according to God's law for sex, the one thing, only one thing, the one thing you need to do to experience sex, the one thing you need to do is give up your whole life, is what God is saying here. That's how the law of sex work works. It costs you. It costs you for the rest of your life. So before you do have sex, you are called to leave your home and make a lifelong, honourable commitment to give of yourself to the other person. That is the law of sex. This is the construct of sex. The fabric of reality says that we acknowledge there is a price, there is a cost to sex and it is giving of myself to the other person. And that is not a rule, it is a law. And the only sex that is without a victim then is sex within something we happen to call marriage. It's why we say marriage is so precious. It's why we say marriage is a, is a spiritual act. It is why, even in society at the moment, we're guarding the definition of what marriage is. It's such a beautiful thing that it must only be done with that one other. It's why it's so important. If we understand how, how holy it is, we understand the incredible power that is in, in sex. When we don't do this, even if we consent to have sex outside of marriage, it isn't that we have broken a rule, it's that we've broken an internal law. And I could point you to person after person that will talk about the fact that they may have had sex at some previous time outside of marriage with good intention, with nice people, with plenty of consent involved, with no apparent victims, and years later... Decades later, sometimes they're still talking about those times and those moments and the sense of that something is not quite right about that. I was talking to somebody just this week who, who says, that's me. That's exactly my situation. I've had to deal with so many things in my own life. Why? Because it's a law of sex. You know, God has built this great gift to bring 
are coupled together. This is what, why sex renews the marriage covenant all the time. Science backs it up. Dr. Stephen Arterburn, he says it like this, sexual pleasure, pleasure is one of the most intense human experiences, physically speaking, when a woman and a man are together because a chemical is released into the brain called an opioid. Obviously, it's opium-like. He goes on to say, apart from a heroin-induced experience, nothing is more physically pleasurable. This is a wonderful thing in a committed marriage relationship because here it again, it helps bond two people together and bring joy to living together and building a relationship. What does it do? It brings oneness. See, through the sexual relationship, there is intimacy of persons. There is an exchange of character. You know, we're told it doesn't matter if you sleep around, but physically and emotionally and spiritually and chemically, this could not be further from the truth. So when God tells you, you have to be faithful to your spouse, or you should be a virgin before marriage, to remain faithful within marriage, what he's saying is, I want the best for you. I want you to have life. I want you to be one with your spouse. I want you to be connected. I want you to grow together. So now we're starting to speak to how sex works and it works within marriage, the joining of a man and a woman. Anything outside of that is outside of God's will. It starts to make things clear. It starts to make things simple. Things like prostitution, virginity, homosexuality, group sex masturbation, pornography. By the way, we're going to talk about lust next week and, and obviously with that comes masturbation and pornography. Never from a place of judgment, of mean-spirited condemning, but talking about the wholeness that we have in Christ. Because suddenly we understand where things stand. We see that this is the law of sex rather than the rule of sex. Now here's the thing, and this is why it matters. When you see God as a God that makes rules about sex, you think to yourself, well, it doesn't really matter if I break a rule because rules are always changed. Rules come and go. Rules are just things that are passed down. It doesn't really matter. And by the way, God's a forgiving God, isn't he? Because that's, that's God's job. He forgives. Like I think God would be bored if I didn't break the rules, right? Because that's what God do, does. He just forgives people. But we start to understand that well, God does forgive, but you're breaking a law. You damage yourself in the act of not understanding the law of sex. There's a little poem that says this. Funny little poem. You might have said it when you were at school. Sex is evil. Sex is sin. But sins are forgiven, so sex is in. <laughs> sex is evil. Sex is sin. But sins are forgiven, so sex is in. So much about that poem is ridiculously wrong. What a perversion of even what God thinks about sex. Sex is evil, sex is sin, rubbish. But then the second part is, well, God forgives, it doesn't matter. Just leave it up to him to forgive me and everything will be okay. But no, the law of sex has been broken. It doesn't work like that. You've broken God's design for sex. That's why when the scripture says flee, run from sexual immorality it's not being prudish it's not just trying to make life hard for us it's saying there is man you will damage yourself if you get messed up in this stuff look at the preceding verses 16 and 17 do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body for it is said the two will become one flesh 
but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. You really think about what that is saying there. You see that the same power that unites the Godhead is involved in sex. It's that same power. This is a spiritual power that's involved. The same awesome power is at work when a person yields his life to Jesus Christ. When we receive Jesus, suddenly we realize we're not alone, right? Our thoughts change, our lives change. We have a deposit of his spirit in us. I met a gentleman probably here uh, even this morning, getting baptized today. In the last couple of weeks, has had his life changed, transformed, like radically. Can't believe the change it's made because he's received the spirit of Jesus Christ in him. There's something powerful in that spiritual transaction. And it's that same power that operates in sex. Do you know that in Scripture, at times, the Greek word for the Word or the Bible, you know, we read the Word. Greek word in some places is, is described as spora and sperma. So the Bible that we read every day is described as sperma in places. And it's like a bit of a strange thought, right? But, but it, again, you see this all throughout the Scripture, the, the sexual somewhat similarities, the truths that apply here. It's like God's Word in a living form seeds itself into our life, that a deposit of His life comes into us and it changes us again as we blend our life with His and we become more like Him. God gives his physical demonstration of the intimacy that he has and that he wants with us. Sex is a powerful thing. Again, that's why the Bible says flee sexual immorality. This is not the same as anything else in life. You know, I've had people even somewhat recently say, Christian people say, why do you, why do you go on about sex? You should, be, you should be really hitting some of the other topics. You should be talking about greed and anger and bitterness and some of those things. And you know what? There's, there's a certain truth to that, especially when Christians look like we're coming down on that condemning tone and beating people up. But you know what? This one matters. It's why Paul emphasizes it there in that scripture. Your life is changed in this moment. There are things that happen, happen in the sexual a relationship that you just can't go and sort of wash and be clean. It touches you deep in your spirit, in, the, in places you cannot wash, in places you cannot touch. That's why I'd say to young people, you've got to grab a hold of the good theology of sex because I'm telling you, you know, nothing you don't know. You're going to walk out of this place and check your iPhone and the message you'll get is sex, fine, no problem. You'll watch TV, the same message. You'll, you'll see a billboard, the same message. Sex education class, the same message. you go through uni, they'll be handing out condoms, the same message. And you've got to get in your head a theology of why sex matters so much. And it's not just for the young, it's for all of us, us that are blessed enough to be married. It's the same um, question for us otherwise we go through our life and say well you know what I'm a little bit bored at the moment and things aren't so good with my spouse I think I'll just swap out my spouse for, for another spouse or just do something on the side pornography doesn't matter prostitution that doesn't really matter because we don't have a theology of sex or how it damages us one of the privileges 
of being in this role as I talk to people that have given their life over to sexual uh, addictions and, and had their life follow that path. And that I'm telling you, it doesn't bring joy, it doesn't bring life or happiness, but brokenness because the law of sex is being broken. And as I end, I want to challenge us as believers, as people that are following after Jesus on this topic. I want to say that if you're here today, it's your first time, you're here for a husband or a, or a family member that's being baptized, this might sound like absolute foreign language. In fact, you may, I would understand if you'd be mad, you'd be just angry, it just sounds like crazy talk. I understand that and I just welcome you back to keep doing the journey with us. But those of us that are walking the walk with Jesus, we need to wake up. Matthew 5, 13 says, You are the salt of the earth, but if a salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? You're no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. What's it talking about? It's talking about salt being different, salt adding taste. You know, when salt is around, because things are different, and we're called to be different living and walking in paths that are separate to the way the world walks. We need to be called back to living by the great laws that Jesus has called us to, to return to the, the ways and means that he's called us. And yes, it is at times grossly unpopular to say some of the things I've said today that we'll say next week, that we'll say when we do a, a, an FAQ day on it in, in two weeks' time. Grossly unpopular. But when we do say it, we call each other back to the universal principle that brings life. Matthew 5.14 says, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. When Christians forget what is true, I believe the light goes out in our community. We stop saying what is true. We find ourselves intimidated and silent. And we didn't come up with this stuff. It's not because we're smart. It's because God is smart. We can't go dark. We've got to know what is right. We have to proclaim what is true. Matthew 5, 16, in the same way that your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You know, when we get it right, God is praised because I believe people get a glimpse of heaven. They get a glimpse of what life can be like, but it is up to us that we don't lose our saltiness, that our light is shining people in control of passions and desires, uh, uh, people where men and women are respected, trustworthy and upright. Where heaven is reflected. As I really do finish, I want to say, nobody here is beat up. We should be convicted. Sometimes being convicted at the beginning of the process feels a little bit like a beat up. That's the truth. But it's, the question is, where does it lead us? Does it lead us away from God or does it lead us toward God? Does it lead us toward Jesus? If we look at Genesis, we find where this all comes from. I've already mentioned it, 2.18. God says, it's not good for the man to be alone. He placed that in us, that cry in our heart, that search for intimacy, but it cannot be filled with sex all the perversions of sex that mankind have turned to. You talk to, again to anyone who struggled with sexual addiction, they have as much sex as they can imagine. But 
sex as you can poke a stick at. And they'll tell you they're the loneliest people on the face of the earth with no intimacy at all because sex is born out of intimacy. It's born out of a decision to love. It doesn't bring you to intimacy. And it causes all sorts of desires to well up because of our broken state, because of the sinful world we live in. All sorts of perversions spring up and we run after this way and that. And just to be very clear, before we look at others and think that they're sinners, I would be surprised, honestly, if there was a person in this room who hasn't struggled in some form with a confusion over their own selves and about sex and the brokenness of sex in this world. Probably not even one. Same-sex attraction is just a different area of pressure to me and how righteous it can feel if it isn't the area that we're pressured in. When you don't struggle with it, it can be just so easy. But we're all struggling with something. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, you find the very first evidence of sin was that they ran and covered themselves. Why? Because they were naked and ashamed. The very first area of pressure that is brought on mankind is in this area of sexuality. It is the area that is chased after. But there's an answer to all of this. Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary and who are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Why? Because my burden is not heavy, it's light. He comes to help. Your greatest need in your life is for Jesus to walk with you, for Jesus to bring that healing, for you to receive his spirit, for you to train your mind. And that sometimes takes training. It's sometimes not a moment. It's, it's a lifetime of teaching yourself to look to Him, to be renewed by His Word, to allow His Spirit to work in us and change us into the likeness of Him. But to get there, you've got to be honest about the struggles you're facing. How do I be a holy man or a woman and live the life that God's calling to me to live? And He will help. That's why we're continuing this series in the following weeks. Next week, it's a little bit more practical about how do we walk towards the wholeness that God is calling us to. Next week, we move communion deliberately. We'll share communion together because we always have the blood of Christ that we can go back to. We read it. I want to focus on it next week in our communion. We read it yesterday in our, in our devotions. How Jesus says, you, you're so interested in human rules. He talks about that. He says, oh, oh, what about God's laws? He says, the only way you can follow God's laws is if you let me touch your heart. If you let my blood touch your heart, if I can come in and deal with the issues of your heart, there's hope and there's wholeness. As we share with each other, as we come to, to Christ in forgiveness and look to him we ask him for healing as we walk the journey with brothers and sisters in accountability as we listen to his word and let it wash over us we have hope let's pray heavenly father we just really kick off this week and i pray that that just dose of theory would not remain just theory, God, but that would be our eternal truth that would sit well in our heart 
Father God, and even as some of us right now are wrestling with it and maybe a little bit mad about it, maybe some of us are just reflecting on our own brokenness, God, that you would come in and speak by your Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, a message of of hope right now, of wholeness that is available in you, of grace that leads us into obedience in you. God, never leave us the same. We know that's not your heart, but lead us on into the real life that you've got for us and let us be that community, God, that displays that light on the hill. God, and the the salt is so evident in our own lives, God, the distinct difference of walking with you, not so we can be prideful, but so we can reveal the glory of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.